What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Even the most brilliant minds occasionally need help, and that's when you call the Rock Doctors. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Today, we invite into the clinic Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Krugman, and we'll review the new albums by Noel Gallagher of Oasis and Kate Bush. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And now it's time for some music news. That's a song from the latest Drake album, Take Care, which we reviewed last week on Sound Opinions, and it is the number one album in the country this week. No big surprise they're selling more than a half million copies. The great story about Drake here, I think, is the self-made aspect of it. Here was a guy who was giving away stuff online to sort of build a base for himself and then singing cameos on other artists' records before he actually released anything himself. There are a number of hip-hop artists in recent years who have been following a similar formula. The number one album the week before was also another new hip-hop artist, Mac Miller, a 19-year-old Pittsburgh native. He gave away a free mixtape online. He built up a huge following on both Twitter and Facebook, acquiring more than a million followers on each. So when he finally got around to releasing his first album, Blue Slide Park, it immediately ascended to number one. Quite an accomplishment. He became the first indie artist since 1995 to debut at the top of the charts. The last artist to do so, the Dog Pounds, Dog Food, back in 95, and now Mac Miller does the same thing. Give away your music for free seems to be the way to build an audience for these hip-hop artists. Absolutely, Greg, but ironically, Billboard, who for more than half a century, the industry trade publication, has been the arbiter of what it means to be on the top of the charts, is changing its rules. You will recall earlier in the year, at the same time that Amazon was launching its new cloud music service, Lady Gaga released her Born This Way album. Amazon decided to sell it at a deeply discounted price, 99 cents. This helped Gaga hit sales of a million copies, half of those coming from Amazon and its discount in the first week, debuting, of course, at number one on the charts. Billboard essentially is taking the attitude that this was rigging the chart result for that week, and it has just changed its policy. The Billboard editorial said, we ultimately chose $3.49 as the new price point. None of this 99-cent business in order for that album sale to be counted towards the number one total. That's about half of what retailers are paying on average in the digital world, at least $750 they're paying. That means that the half million sales Gaga got in week one 
one from Amazon wouldn't have been counting toward putting her at number one. But I think that that little change in the policy of the charts is underscoring a bigger paradigm shift, Greg, in the music world. What does it mean to have a number one record in 2011? I'll tell you this, doesn't mean what it meant a decade ago. If you look at 95, right, Hootie and the Blowfish, personal friends of mine, scored a number one best-selling album of the year with cracked rear view, 7 million total sold. Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill in 96, 7.5 million. The Spice Girls, 97, 7 million. The last couple of years' best-selling albums, Alicia Keys, As I Am, in 2008, a mere 3.6 million sold. Taylor Swift, Fearless, in 2009, 3.2 million. Susan Boyle, who could forget, last year I dreamed a dream, 3.8 million. About half of what best-selling number one albums were selling regularly up until the turning point of early in the new millennium. I think the last mega-selling record we're ever going to see was Eminem's Eminem Show 2002, 10 million. There's never going to be a record that ever sells that many again. And now Billboard wants to chip away at discounted records. You know, Gaga selling one for 99 cents isn't going to count. Obviously, the ones that are moved for free don't count. What does it mean to have a number one selling record? Oh, help me, please, doctor. I'm damaged. There's a pain where there once was a heart It's sleeping, it's evading Can't you please tear it out And preserve it right there in that jar You're listening to Sound Opinions And Greg, it's time again to put on the scrubs And take out the prescription pads For another installment of The Rock Doctors this is when we help one of our listeners with some kind of musical ailment, whether it's an allergy, an addiction, or the need for a new dose of music. Basically, how it works is we'll talk to our patient, get a little bit of a medical history, his or her likes, dislikes, habits, and then you and I, Dr. Cott, will prescribe two records we think will help heal them. Without further ado, let's get on to this week's appointment. We are delighted to open up the clinic to Paul Krugman. He is a Nobel Prize-winning economist at Princeton University and a regular columnist for the New York Times. Recently, an entry in his blog, The Conscience of a Liberal, really caught our eye. Paul explained to his readers that he was looking for some new music, music he could invest in and connect with. So we thought, sounds like a challenge for the rock doctors. We're happy to have Paul with us on the phone now. Paul, thanks for taking the time out from being a superstar economist to do this with us. Okay, well, this is a lot more fun than economics most of the time. <laughs> well, well you, you... Come on. You slyly slip in references to music on occasion in, into your columns in the New York Times. And uh, can we start by, by you telling us, you know, how music plays a role in your life? I mean, it's not all just sitting around looking at the Nobel Prize, right? <laughs> yeah, um, maybe especially given what I do for a living, which is looking at mostly dire stuff. I need something different, a little beauty, a little grace in, in life. Particularly, I've recently gotten into listening to new music. I'm an aging baby boomer who has suddenly discovered that there's a lot of really great stuff being done now. And so it's become a, that journey of exploration has become something that is a, a welcome relief from some of the other things I have to deal with. Well, as a baby boomer, you probably have some vinyl in your collection, or once did, right? So you've seen yeah, all these lost, but yeah, all these huge technological changes in the industry. So, from an economic standpoint, 
you're looking at a music industry now that is in the toilet, uh, effectively. Is there any other single industry, in your opinion, that is as screwed as the music industry right now? Yeah, who's in worse shape, Professor, Greece or the music business? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. The thing is, as best I can make out, music is in some ways... It's returning to its roots. All right, I'll be an economist here, right, and say it's. It, the trouble is now that recordings have become very difficult to keep as private property, and basically, it's. it's uh, we have this thing about appropriability and the information you create by producing a a performance that can be digitized is very hard to appropriate, and that's why the recording business is screwed. But you know, there's uh, still uh, live performance, which is. Uh, is always going to be an experience that, that you can't really replicate except by being there. And so, I, you know, I think it's going to be very different. It's obviously going to be a lot less lucrative financially, but I don't think music is going away. Well, that's a point Greg and I always make, and I guess we're more on the history tip than the uh, economics tip. It could just be that this business of selling recorded music was a 140-year blip, you know, whereas music spans the entire history of civilization. Yeah, I mean, it, there, it's not as if there weren't superstars of a kind before there was re- there was a recording business, but they were superstars because people wanted to hear them in person. Well, the question is, how do you get to them, right? I mean, as a child of the vinyl age, Paul, how do you get your music now? How do you find out what the good stuff is? Uh, it's a little embarrassing, I guess, sort of, but uh, I'm, I'm doing a lot of it uh, via, via YouTube. I will hear about or have seen references to some group. Uh, now, these days, I get emails from people saying, you know, given what we know you like from your blog, you probably like these people, and I'll watch a live performance on YouTube. And if I, if I like it, then, well, I've discovered something new, someone, someone I really like. Give us some artists you've discovered recently and tell us why. What's important? What do you value in the music that you do go back to consistently? Yeah, so actually, so what I just discovered about just a couple of weeks ago is the Civil Wars. Uh, which is just uh, just a duo, and I would have thought not my kind of thing until I started listening. I think it's it is the it's the thrill of the, of the live performances. I mean, they do have obviously a record, and it, it's fine. But I actually prefer the live performances of those songs, and it's because there is a a feel of authenticity to it. And in their case, uh, there's there's a kind of joy about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the other groups I love are not so much exactly joy as, as just intensity. But in this case, it's. If I want to bring a smile to my face, I listen to them singing. What's the foundation for, for your taste? Wow, it's kind of funny, because I actually have almost like two separate lives here. I was a baby boomer, so I listened to, to Beatles and thought I was being very adventurous by moving up in time to Fleetwood Mac, you know, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then pretty much stopped there. Then I came back into this whole thing, also a little embarrassing, uh, the Grammys came out, and the surprise, this band called Arcade Fire had won Best Album. And for some reason, I thought to myself, I wonder what that's about. I started listening, and I thought, oh, my God. There has been good music 
uh, produced since 1980. <laughs> so, and that, that was really my, my entry in, into, into something different. So that was that's in a way been the foundation of my recent recent searching. I started with Arcade Fire and then started in this kind of random walk. Sorry, economist term, but the random walk in, into finding other other groups I liked. Oh, I like that. I think we should steal that, Greg. <laughs> random walk. Well, you know, and, and that is life today. There's so much information coming at you. I don't think there's any shame in rekindling your interest in music through Arcade Fire. It, it's good to have you back listening <laughs> yeah, to music. No, it's, it's, <laughs> you know? Plus, we found a good use for the Grammys. You know, yep. we needed a justification to watch the Grammys. There you go. Found a cool group by by tuning into the Grammys. Yeah, Paul, if you haven't seen the Grammys between 1970 and last year <laughs> when Arcade Fire won, that was the only case of the Grammys getting anything right in the last 25, 30 years. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I have not. I, I do not, in fact. Uh, I didn't watch it. I mean, I, I read about it in the New York Times. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. There, there you go. All right. Before we give our prescription, let's get one more piece of information for you. What do you hate? What turns you off most in music? You know, you click on it on YouTube say, I can't abide by this. Oh, boy. The, the feeling that it's, it's coming from, from somebody, probably not the musician, trying to scope out, th- thinking of it as, as if they were selling a, a, a hair product rather than someone who actually had something they wanted to say musically. So marketing. Yeah. Any, any, any sense that it's, that it's not a personal uh, statement that it's a that it's a marketing ploy is it, immediately I, I, I run I run screaming out of the room. I'm reading some anti-capitalism here between the lines, Paul. Yeah, I, I've got nothing ro- uh, against capitalism and lots of things. I, I'm uh, I like my smartphone. I like uh, you know, but but actually, this is, there's a little bit. I think actually, even the way capitalism is supposed to work is to a large extent you do rely on people having some kind of vision. And then we see if, if the marketplace likes that vision. But but you know, art is special. No no one ever said that that the creation of art was something that was especially well served by market forces. Yeah. yeah. You should be starting a record label tomorrow with the artists that you like on it. I think you'd be a perfect candidate for that. Or at you'd, least be a rock critic. An you know. idealist in a world of, of, of capitalists. Right. There yeah. you go. Well, that's great. So, Dr. DeRogatis, are, are you ready to prescribe something for, for Paul here? Yeah, I was thinking about this long and hard, you know, because we don't want to screw up. We have a Nobel, our first ever Nobel Prize winner okay. on Sound Opinions. And I was initially going to try to go somewhere toward math rock, you know, thinking <laughs> economics. Right? But no, that that's not true. The thing about economics that the only thing I recall from college is that it is equal part philosophy and math. And you have to have those two things in balance. So, Paul, it, it's interesting to hear you say you love the Civil Wars because I also found a duo, an indie folk rock, but really genre-defying duo that, that you may love. Wyoak is a twosome from Baltimore, Maryland. Oh, okay. Uh, brought to you by the record label that brought you Arcade Fire, Merge Records out of North Carolina. It's a drummer who plays some keyboards and sings, and there's an incredible woman up front on vocals. Because I read that you also like Feist, right? Indeed. All right. I think Jen Wozner is a better Feist than Feist. Okay. Dark, husky voice. 
obtuse poetic lyrics, kind of a, a sense of mystery, but also a sense of awe and celebration in, in the music on their new album. It's called Civilian, and it's a really strong record that we haven't actually talked about on the radio show this year, so I'm glad it fits your prescription perfectly. It gives us a chance to play some of that music and see what you think of it. It's great. The al- so the album Civilian, it's Y Oak. Dr. Cott, have you got a prescription? I do, and I've uh, I've wrestled with this uh, uh, choice for a couple of days now because I've been reading what uh, what Paul is into, and now talking to you, Paul, very inspiring. I, I like some of the words that were jumping out at me. You know, the joy and and, and the. I think you also have a, a sense of you, you want a certain amount of melody with with what you're getting here. Is that right? Yeah, I'm. I'm I think I haven't quite managed to transcend the. Got to sound beautiful barrier. So yeah, I mean Beatles, Fleetwood Mac, Arcade Fire. That would make total sense. At the same time, maybe a little bit of ambition with the music because you don't just want boilerplate stuff. But at the end of the day, the artist has got to be totally invested in what they're doing. They're making art for art's sake as opposed to for some other capitalist reason, to use an economic term very uh, badly. Um, So the artist I'm going to choose is a veteran artist. He is actually a founding member of a Welsh band called Super Furry Animals. But he's produced a number of solo albums. His name is Griff Rees. And uh, his latest solo album is called Hotel Shampoo. And I think it fits your criterion very well. It's got a little bit of a lyrical sensibility where it's not on its face directly apparent what he's singing about. They're more poetic, elliptical type of lyrics. Now, now, Greg, this isn't one of the records where he's singing in Welsh. No, he's actually produced a couple of records where he has sung <laughs> okay, all right. entirely in Welsh. But this is in English, I assure you. But th- th- what really gets to me about this record, the lovely melodies with some strange twists in the arrangement, some psychedelic touches, and very much outside the mainstream parameters. This guy has had a wonderful career, very much doing the music that he loves and wants to do. I've seen him live a number of times, and... Paul, it sounds like you're really a fan of the live experience in, in terms of what, how that can deliver the sort of visceral, joyful nature of performance. Griff Reese is, is definitely in that category. And I think this record kind of sums up all his, his strengths, Hotel Shampoo from Griff Reese. So hopefully this prescription is going to work for you. All right. All right, Paul, we'll check back with you in a week and see how our prescriptions fared. Now, remember, we can take criticism, especially from a Nobel Prize winner. So if you come back and say those were horrible choices, we're not going to be heartbroken. Well, yeah, and particularly (laughs) this is, let's bear in mind, that I have zero claim to authority, expertise, or even <laughs> uh, even basic competence in this field. So, uh, so many, I, I say I hate something, it counts for exactly nothing. Well, many are the listeners who say that we have zero expertise, too, so don't worry about that. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, thanks a lot. We'll be back with part two of our discussion with Paul Krugman in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. We'll find out how the medicine went down. And later, Jim and I will review new albums by Noel Gallagher of Oasis and singer-songwriter Kate Bush.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. We're in the midst of a rock doctor's appointment with our guest this week, economist Paul Krugman. Paul describes himself as an aging baby boomer who has recently decided he'd like more new music in his life. Now, so far, he's finding good stuff via suggestions from his New York Times blog readers and YouTube, things like Arcade Fire and Feist. But we wanted to see what the rock doctors could do for him. So we prescribed two albums. My recommendation was Hotel Shampoo by Griff Reese, and Dr. DeRogatis went with Civilian, by Y Oak. So it's a week later. Let's get Paul back on the phone. Hello. Hey, Paul. Hi. Hey, it's Jim and Greg from Sound Opinions. Hi there. Uh, it's a week later. You've been taking your uh, rock doctor's medicine all week, I hope? I've been trying, yeah. In, be- in between <laughs> grappling with the economy and thinking great thoughts and writing columns and. Yeah, all that stuff. All right. Paul, how did you fare on these two prescriptions, and which one would you like to start with? Okay. So, actually, what I should tell you right to begin with is I I didn't like either record, <laughs> uh, but I ended up liking one of the artists, and ah. that's I think that's a story there. All right, Paul. So, you didn't like either album, and I guess we failed as rock doctors, and, and we want to get into depth about where both records left you short. I prescribed... Y Oak's last record, Civilian. Dr. Cott, what was your prescription? I had the Griff Reese record, Hotel Shampoo, which I was certain was going to be a winner. But, uh, hey, that's (laughs) the way it goes, right? Well, I could just tell, though, Paul has good reasons, and he's thought this through. Let's start with the Y Oak. You have mixed feelings about that. Yeah. Um, I really wasn't much liking the the album. Okay. uh, But was hearing something that made me think I want to look at this little more, you know, get into this a little bit more, and so I started looking for uh, for live performances on YouTube, mm-hmm. and found myself saying, "Hey, hey, this is a group I really uh, I can find things in," which is an interesting an interesting uh, thing. I, I think you know, we don't know anything about the details of how the album was made, but I think I think the way it was done, from my point of view anyway, did a real disservice to a very very interesting uh, artist. Well, you know, you had told us that that was a symptom, that you really loved the live performances and you're kind of addicted to watching these. But this is a weird thing, though, Paul. I remember years ago a friend of mine, fellow rock critic Jim Testa, had, had posited in the Village Voice Pez and Jop poll that there were two kinds of rock critics. One was the club rat who lived for live music and went out all the time and heard bands differently because he or she had the benefit of seeing them on stage. And then the other type of person never went out and just listened to records. And Robert Criscow was then the editor of The Voice, and he kind of epitomized that, a man who would listen to a record 50 times and then write about it. But you're in the middle because you're not going to see bands, but you put the primacy on the live performance. Yeah, and you know, I can, so I can think of, I can tell you a little bit more about the reaction to Y Oak because uh, it, it was interesting. So, so what you see the, the title track, Civilian. There are several good sound quality 
uh, performances available on, on YouTube. And they are thrilling. Jen Wagner has got a great voice. Uh, the two of them have got this very uh, you know, charismatic presence, and the stuff is quite exciting. That that track is is the one that I like best on the album, but it's not as good. Um, and the others, but here's what here's what, what I thought. I, it sounded to me they're overproduced. There's mm. too much stuff going on that ends up detracting from the performance. Was the way it came across to me. And it's not being prettified, it's almost sort of the opposite. It's like somebody said, oh, let's, we need to make this thing sound edgy. And so they put in a lot of sound effects and sound distortions that end up making it sound like this is not two people performing. And the live performances just struck me as being much better. So, so Paul, if I can sum up, I think what you're saying is, is they let you down on record, but you think these artists have merit. Would you actually go out and see them live now, or is seeing them live on YouTube enough? Well, I... No, I'm a little old to be going to clubs. Uh, <laughs> oh, never, come on. Never, 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 never but if there, was, if there was a good occasion, yeah, I would. Because I, I, you could see. I mean, that is a good thing about the uh, about YouTube, which is it lets those of us who are a little bit uh, burdened down for this sort of thing to, to experience a lot. But, uh, yeah, they're real. You can see that there's a, there's a vision and a voice. Uh, I mean, literally a voice. Jen Wozner has quite a voice, but also there, there's a voice with a capital V. This is that's a find. You know what I'm getting in between the lines here too, Doctor Cott, mm. is that I think that there might be a band out there that could tap Paul Krugman into producing them. Paul, my my sense of your production aesthetic might be you would be the guy that would hang the with the one, the single microphone in the middle of the room and say basically play your live show. Uh, probably, yeah. In <laughs> fact, I I mean I I actually see this in some of the groups that I've been attached to for a longer time that that a fair number of people. If you look at comments on on videos saying you know, why why can't they make a live record here why can't we uh, 
that this performance is so much better than the one that's on the album. And I, I, there's a lot of that, I think. Yeah. yeah well, it worked for Led Zeppelin, too. It worked for Johnny Cash with Rick Rubin. Well, I can already see why you probably hated the Grifferese Hotel Shampoo record that I prescribed, Paul. So am I on the right track here? Too much production? Or, or yeah, what I, were the real issues with it? I, I kept on trying to listen to stuff, and I kept on saying, what's all this junk? Uh, <laughs> I want to I hear the music, you know? And and there's there's so much going on that, that is... Uh, try and turn things into little dramas and, you know, fine if that's your taste, but I wanted to hear performance. And it turns out that it's a lot harder to actually find online live live performances by Riff Reese to get get a, any 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 second read. So I I was basically I I I tried that album you know, several times, charged a little way up the hill, and then retreated in full flight. <laughs> there was just so much so much junk in the way of of the music. You know, you might try his uh, other group, Super Furry Animals. There's probably a little bit more available on YouTube on them. I've seen them live a bunch of times, and pretty amazing group. There is a difference, clearly, between the what they're doing in the studio and what they're doing live. I think that's probably true of many bands. The one thing that sort of maybe led me astray, you know, you mentioned some bands as, uh, like the Beatles and, the, and Fleetwood Mac, Peter Gabriel being formative influences. And I was thinking, you know, there were some ornate, touches on those records they they clearly weren't making records where it was just you know raw and stripped down there were some little production touches and what i thought would win you over was that at the at the bottom here you know we've got a pretty good songwriter but uh, it sounds like you're kind of going for more early beatles and early fleetwood mac as opposed to the more produced uh, stuff that they did later in their careers yeah i know where i failed i've got to get you some super furry animals uh, youtube uh, video from their live performances i think that would have done it instead I'm not of so this sure. particular record. you know you know the furry animals though live greg are all about the lights and the envelopment and you know the music's almost but you and i were both at that show i think it was yeah, at metro was it, at metro and it was it was a mind blower right i mean yeah, yeah. i thought it was a oh. great live show yeah but paul's no nonsense he yeah. wants real world applications here, I think this is also part of his strength as an economist. Yeah. I'm not just going to theorize. I want to see how it works in the real world. You know, we didn't tell you. I was tempted to last week, Paul, that uh, Dr. Cott's prescription was not that far out. No lesser authority than Sir Paul McCartney tapped Grufries and the Super Furry Animals to collaborate on a uh, set of music together called the Liverpool Oratorio. So, <laughs> but what does he know? Paul McCartney doesn't have no Nobel. Uh, well, well, actually, it's a funny thing. I don't know if you want to use it, but so there's a, a really ripping performance by Y Oak of, of Civilian on, on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was done in the KEXP uh, studios. And it has these little things now as seen on, and it's a link from someplace else. 
And it turns out that the link is from a very popular liberal political blog called Eschaton, which happens to be run by a guy who's a PhD in economics. And it's funny. I, so obviously, he uh, there's something about that economics PhD that makes that kind of live performance really resonate with you. Well, I'm blown away, too, by the fact that you seem to have moved beyond the album as the, your primary form of, of getting to music. It seems like YouTube is really where your heart's at in terms of just getting to uh, something different, something a little more raw, something a little bit more visceral, as opposed to uh, the experience that albums could, could give you. Would you yeah, say you've moved I, on I, in that way? For me, it's, it's actually been, uh, it's been transformative. I don't know that I could have gotten into the range of new stuff I've gotten into over the course of the past year without without the ability to watch performances online. Interesting question here raised about the YouTube preference, Paul. You, as an economist, what happens when YouTube suddenly becomes a pay subscription service as opposed to I can go anywhere, anytime I want, and get anything I want for free? Well, it'll be an interesting question how they set it up. I think given how much I've been relying on it, uh, how much this has become an important way for me to to find stuff I like and, and, and stay with it, I would probably just pay the subscription fee. And I guess that's what everyone's hoping, that, that, it's, that these things are not too much of a, of a barrier, that, that the cost will, will hopefully be modest and that people will stay with it. Because, yeah, I mean, in the end, these, there is a service being provided and somehow or other it has to be paid for. I have a little experience there uh, my, myself, which is that I have a blog, which is went behind the Times paywall, the New York mm-hmm. Times paywall, uh, not too long ago, and I was waiting to see whether I had a dramatic drop in readership, and I didn't. So it turns out that a modest fee is now workable now that people have come to, to understand the good things that you can do online. That's the million-dollar <laughs> question, though, right? You know, what will people pay for content? What is that price point? Steve Jobs had one answer, and then the record company strong arms him in a different way. And, you know, meanwhile, nobody's getting anything. <laughs> yeah, and, of course, what's, what's happening, although I, at least as I understand it, you guys know better than I do, but I think the economics of the music business from the point of view of the artists is shifting a lot to live performance because the, uh, there is this problem of appropriability, as, as I would say, when I'm speaking economies instead of English. And, uh, <laughs> but live performance is an experience that, now, of course, YouTube gives you some of that, but it's not the same thing as being there. All right, well, let me ask you one other question. Although we failed musically as rock doctors, did you come down in the end, because you, you talked a lot about how marketing turns you off and, and authenticity, a bugaboo concept in, in, in criticism, did we succeed on the level of anti-marketing and integrity and authenticity? Oh, yeah, there, there's no question. These, these, are, these are not artists who were invented by, uh, invented by someone looking to make a buck. They're real. They have, And I can, I can just see that. Uh, Ruff Reese might be, you know, the, might might actually be the kind of person who would have a cult following. I just didn't like that record, and Wyoke, I think I, I actually think there's there's something major there. Uh, so and and it's and it's obviously coming from them, not from from someone else who said, uh, you know, had had a, a three ring binder with how to, how to construct a successful rock group. Yeah, no corporate brainstorming. There. Yeah. Well, Paul, I'm sorry that the Rock Doctor's prescriptions weren't 100% successful, but it's been a pleasure hearing you talk about music. Thanks for playing along, and thanks for coming on the show. Okay, take care, then.
If you want to make your own appointment with the Rock Doctors or nominate someone you think is in need of assistance, fill out a patient form at soundopinions.org. And to make a comment on music or economics, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. Jim and I are going to be back with reviews of two new albums by Noel Gallagher and Kate Bush. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is a song called The Death of You and Me by Noel Gallagher's new project, High Flying Birds, a self-titled debut album from the primary songwriter and former band leader of Oasis. You remember them, Greg. Huge <laughs> selling band in the Britpop realm from the 90s. The Battle and Gallagher brothers, Liam on vocals, and Noel on songwriting and genius, if we're to believe him. They didn't get along. Worst case of it since Ray and Dave Davies in The Kinks. And watching them fight became more amusing at some point than their music. Mm. The knock on Oasis was that they were expert cribbers of rock history, stealing from the Beatles, stealing from the Kinks, on and on and on, sometimes direct melodies, sometimes large swaths of lyrics. But they filled arenas and they sold millions of records. Now, we have not heard from Oasis as a band since Dig Out Your Soul in 2008. Noel Gallagher is 
out now with his solo debut, Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds. We heard from Liam and uh, some of the other members of the band a while back in a band called Beady Eye, which really didn't make much of an impact at all in the States. Will Noel Gallagher have any more luck with his solo debut with High Flying Birds? We'll get to our reviews in a minute, but first let's hear a track. This is Stop the Clocks by Noel Gallagher on Sound Opinions. Stop the Clocks from uh, Noel Gallagher's first solo album, Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds. Jim, you mentioned his brother Liam was the first out of the box with his record, the, the BDI Project. Basically sounded like an Oasis album. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, you know, Noel, he's kind of the genius in the band, supposedly, the songwriter, the guy with the brains. He's going to go in a different direction. We're going to see a side of Noel Gallagher that we never saw before. Uh, no such luck. He's emphasizing a little bit more keyboards and horns on this record than guitar solos. But generally, this is another Oasis record, those big, epic, overblown songs. Noel's voice isn't nearly as strong as Liam's. He's got a vulnerability and a melancholy to his tone 
that I think would have been well served if he'd done some acoustic songs, maybe brought out some other touchers. You know, there's a few moments here where you think he's going to start to veer off track a little bit with, uh, you know, he does that Kinks knockoff in Soldier Boys. He puts some carnival horns in a, another track. There's a big beat kind of sound to AKA What a Life. You know, he did a great track a few years ago with the Chemical Brothers. Yeah. I was looking for a little bit more experimentation in that vein. Well, especially because he was always claiming that Liam, his brother, held him back. Liam yeah. could only do one thing. But instead, what Noel has done here is basically make another Oasis album. And it's another run-of-the-mill Oasis album. I mean, he has this ability to take these kind of vague words that really don't mean anything and make them sound sort of profound. But what is he really saying in any of these lyrics? My favorite is from Stop the Clocks. What if I'm already dead? How would I know? Yes. What does it mean? It doesn't matter, right? The music can be great. I mean, their early singles were fantastic. Obviously, they sold a lot of records, filled a lot of arenas in the U.K., But the world doesn't need another run-of-the-mill Oasis record. We've had plenty of those in the last decade. This is a trash-it record as far as I'm concerned. I agree, Greg. This is a trash-it record. I'll tell you, I think since album number two, What's the Story, Morning Glory, in 95, each subsequent Oasis album has been only half as good as the one before it. And now that we're into BDI and High Flying Birds, we're actually, you know, half of nothing is nothing. So we yeah. we have nothing going on here. we got a lot of bombast with choirs and horns and an orchestra. We have Noel giving a lot of interviews where he's saying, you know, now is when I finally get to show my song craftsmanship, the mm. Burt Bacharach side. And it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> You're still doing... Bad, third-rate Beatles imitations. Forget it, buddy. Trash it. That is Kate Bush with a track called Wild Man from her 10th studio album, 50 Words for Snow. Kate Bush, she occupies her own little piece of the art rock world in the UK. She came up as a, sort of a t- child prodigy. She was discovered, if you will, by Pink Floyd's David Gilmore in the 70s when she was only 15 years old. That led to a contract with EMI Records. She debuted when she was only a teenager, very ambitious songwriter. Her first single was a song called Wuthering Heights based on the Emily Bronte novel. So, you know, you're talking about setting your sights pretty high in terms of content and what you want to deliver in a typical pop song. Her uh, 1978 debut album, The Kick Inside, was a pretty big hit in the U.K. She didn't really have a lot of U.S. success over the years, but a fairly prominent artist in the U.K. for quite a while. In 1993, The Red Shoes finally cracked the top 30 of the U.S. charts. And then, in typical Kate Bush fashion, she disappeared. For about 12 years, she went off into the English countryside, became a mom, 
focused on domestic life, only to return in 2005 with a much-anticipated double album called Ariel. Another six years of silence followed that. She came back strong this year with a remake of two of her earlier albums called The Director's Cut, very ambitious project where she took two of her earlier albums and redid the songs in more contemporary fashion. And now she's followed it up with a new album of all original material, 50 Words for Snow. I'm going to play a track from it. It's called Misty, and then we're going to come back and review it. Here is Kate Bush with Misty on Sound Opinions. Roll his body That was Kate Bush with the song Misty from her new album, 50 Words for Snow. And Greg, I think it illustrates what is wonderful about this artist. She has that gorgeous voice, of course. She's got a thrilling aesthetic where she can make very beautiful music out of very little. The tinkling piano, that voice, almost nothing else. And 
Best of all, she's stone cold weird. That is a song about having sex with a snowman. No one else could pull it off without sounding either absurd or or salacious. Kate Bush does it. She is this impish fairy-like presence, and her personality infuses all of her music. I was not as thrilled with the remix record we got earlier in this year as you were. I wanted her to do something new after such a long time out of the spotlight. This isn't 100% new. You know, back in 1980, she made a record called December Will Be Magic Again, which was sort of a Christmas record, or at least a seasonal record, and so is 50 Words for Snow. That having been said, I could just listen to her make this ten times in a row. It's a beautiful, beautiful album. It's enchanting. It is the oral evocation of what a beautiful, clean December snowstorm is. And I think it's a buy-it record all the way. Well, it's fabulous stuff. If you're shut in, it's, you know, the snow is completely snowing you in. You've got cabin fever. This is the record you put on. What I'm hearing in this record, Jim, is a return to her earlier style in the sense that in some ways there's almost a childlike sense of wonderment about it. I can almost see someone reading these as bedtime stories. But as in all those children's stories that she's referencing throughout her career, there's a creepiness there. There, There's danger. There's terror. What she puts at the center of this record, and I'm glad to hear it, is her voice and piano. I think she got away from that a little bit on Ariel, her 2005 album. Here, once again, her two greatest instruments, that multi-octave voice and that classically trained sense of piano playing right at the center of this record. The only missteps are on this, on this record are when she sort of seeds a little ground to some of her guest stars. Why she's got a duet with Elton John, oh, I yeah. don't know. I don't want to hear Elton John duetting with Kate Bush. I lost you in a London smog As you crossed the lane And I never know where you're gonna be next But I know that you'll surprise me And she invites the actor Stephen Fry in to do a spoken word performance. Again, gratuitous. I don't need to hear that. But when Kate is Kate, she's at the very top of her game. It's a buy-it record for me as well. So a snowy double buy-it for the new Kate Bush. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have the New Orleans funk and jazz artist Trombone Shorty in the studio for an interview and a live performance. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana with the able assistance of Annie Minoff. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, is Tori Southside Malatia, who came to see the Rock Doctors, but we had to put him in quarantine right away. Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. This is Elliot from St. Louis, and I just heard your show with Wild Flag. Great group. Best album of the year so far, in my opinion. I wouldn't classify them as a super group. I think a super group is when you get six front men together, and they're all clamoring for that top spot. And I don't get that sense with Wild Flag. I get the sense that these are people who are in a, in a band together. They've been in bands apart and together for 20 years, and they just love making music, and it works, and it's awesome. And so we like, we like what we like, and so-
Baltimore, Illinois. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I am not a consistent listener, but Greg, your pick of Earthman and Fire, I got to see them in Indianapolis just this summer, and they're terrific. And, you know, Maurice White was going to be a doctor before he started Earth, Wind, and Fire. His story, all their stories are great. And, um, yeah, I fell in love with Philip Bailey, uh, his high falsetto, all that. And after the love game has been played, all our illusions are just a parade, and all our reasons start to fade. Love them, love them, love them. So thank you so much. Brooks from Dallas, longtime listener. Love the two turkey uh, shoot episodes. They're great. And I, I love the Bon Iver hatred because I loved that first album. thought it was brilliant. And like the first I'd heard anything from the album was him on Colbert's show. I was thinking, okay, number one, why are there so many people on the stage? And number two, what is this? When's the song going to start? And, and I, I got... Uh, Maybe one up you from the uh, Mike and the Mechanics and uh, Peter Cetera. Uh, Christopher Cross. That's what I felt those chords were going. Like uh, sailing, take me away and uh, take me away from this album. The guy needs someone in his life telling him making a bad decision or maybe he needs to go into a cabin again and be all by himself dude's got serious talent and serious creativity in him and i have no idea how it results in that well thanks for listening to my much longer comment than i expected Oh, yeah, hi. This is Dave from Philadelphia. One of the turkeys of the year is from a group that I like, and I travel wherever they go far out into space. Uh, Radiohead, the remix releases that they've done, they, they just don't go anywhere or don't do anything. If I don't immediately grasp onto the song, I give it a couple more listens and I find something in it, and it opens up and it's interesting, but not, not this latest remix release. It's just... Uh, how about some traditional song and the immortal words of uh, Tom Petty? Uh, don't bore us, get to the chorus. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline. 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.